Hello? Anybody home? Today, I want you to open your mind. I've almost come to the conclusion that the story is so damning that the mass of people can't deal with it. We are in process of developing a whole series of techniques to get people actually to love their servitude. We face a hostile ideology, global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose and insidious in method. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence. To change the minds and the attitudes and the beliefs of the people of the world, especially the United States, to bring about one world socialist totalitarian government. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. It has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted the ripping imprint of a boot on the pages of history since the beginning of time. Brutes have risen to power, but they lie. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. If you can get people to consent to the state of affairs in which they are living, then you have a much more easily controllable society than you would if you were relying wholly on clubs and firing squads and concentration camps. Tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices, to be found only in the minds of men. As you connect the dots between different people, organizations, places, religions, history, suddenly the picture starts to form. If you don't connect the dots, it's just a mass of what's all this about. The kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you, you the people have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Someone born in the United States is not more special than someone born in Mexico. Someone who is white is not more special than someone who is black. They're just vehicles for the consciousness to experience. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. They do not want your children to be educated. They do not want you to think too much. It was learned that the aliens had been and were then manipulating masses of people through secret societies, witchcraft, magic, the occult, and religion. They reach into our children in music, television, books. Prey on children's innocence. How can I disprove lies that are stamped with an official seal? So if you have the opportunity to stand next to one of these machines, it feels like an altar to an alien god. Power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a kid that's found his dad's gun. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc is now in the possession of the Army. Too many others know what's happening out there, and no one, no government agency has jurisdiction over the truth. Any state, any entity, any ideology that fails to recognize the worth, the dignity, the rights of man, that state is obsolete. A case to be filed under M for Mankind in the Twilight Zone. About time some of you got acquainted with the real hard truth. It's the heart that says, I will not acquiesce. Across the gulf of space, intellects, vast and cool and unsympathetic, regarded our planet with envious eyes. Each of us, when separated, is always looking for our other half. And the desire and the pursuit of the whole is called love. Heart perception will change everything. Freedom is the privilege to be right. Freedom from the disasters of our mistakes. Broadcasting from the Sonoran Desert, I'm your host, Ryan Gable, 
and you are listening to The Secret Teachings Radio, airing five nights a week, Monday through Friday, 10 p.m. to midnight Pacific, on Ground Zero Dot Radio and the Aftermath FM, soon to be Ground Zero app. Right after Clyde Lewis and Ground Zero, thank you so much for tuning into The Secret Teachings and staying with Ground Zero Radio tonight, this morning, this afternoon, whenever and wherever you are listening around the world. If you'd like to listen to the show after it airs, you can search The Secret Teachings on any radio or podcast player. You can listen to the show and download it for free. Or you can check out our full show archive with ad-free shows, all of our montages, my digital books, and a private RSS feed. It is discounted for the holidays. You can check it out at www.thesecretteachings.info. If you'd like to contact me directly, the email rdgable at yahoo.com. That's R-D-G-A-B-L-E at yahoo.com. And the other email, tstradio at protonmail.com. Last but not least, social media. We only have two pages, facebook.com forward slash The Secret Teachings and on Twitter, TST underscore underscore radio. For those of you who have never listened to The Secret Teachings before, I know sometimes our name can be kind of confusing. Some people take it as literal, like I'm sitting here behind a microphone and I'm giving you secret teachings that nobody else knows and that implies I'm somehow better than you. That's not what this show is about, though. The show is named after my favorite book, The Secret Teachings of All Ages by Manly Palmer Hall, who at about the age of 24 published that book for the first time. A massive compilation of occult, esoteric, theological, mythological, alchemical, etc. information that no matter how many times I read it, it's kind of like a sacred text. It's kind of like a Bible, in a sense, uh, for occultists or for esotericists. There's so much great information in that book, but there are so many other great authors as well. And over the years, we've looked into pretty much anything you'd go to an occult bookstore and find. We've discussed it on this show, or I have it in my library here in studio, because that really is the core, the base of what the Secret Teachings radio show is all about. And we also use history and occultism mix those two things together, and we use that to analyze current events. And on occasion, we welcome guests on the show, and we'll talk with those guests about a number of different subjects, whatever that guest uh, specializes in. They could be an author, they could be a doctor, they could be a scientist, they could be a philosopher, they could be anything, or they could be more than one thing. And tonight we are joined by a really great artist and a really great author, Marlena Seven Brimner. You can find her website by searching M A R L E N A E, excuse me, Marlena, M A R L E N E, seven S E V N, Brimner, B R E M N E R. She's written a really amazing book called Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy. The subtitle The Emerald Tablet, The Corpus Hermeticum, and The Journey Through the Seven Spheres. All things that I addressed, at least in part, in my book, Occult Arcana, and things that I enjoy reading and writing and talking about every single day of my life and five days a week here on The Secret Teaching. So, Arlena Seven-Brimner, thank you so much for joining me on the broadcast this evening. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. I have to say, I looked at your art, and art doesn't always speak to me, but your art is is something that is... Before we get to the book, something amazing that I think we should talk about 
It is very, very detailed in its symbology. I'm very impressed by it. Uh, you're a wonderful artist, and I hope listeners go and check out some of your art. Tell us a little bit about what inspires you, because this is like very deep stuff from the point of view of someone who studies this myself my whole life. I look at your art and I see, you know, just volumes of, of books and things that I've read, but it's in visual form. It's really amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of study that goes into each and every painting, and that's actually a lot of what informed the writing of the book as well. But I, I began painting with a desire to portray energy and to give a visual form to things that I was experiencing in my body. Um, so I was exploring the energy body and the chakras and stuff like that in relationship to the planets and different correspondences with plants and minerals as well. And this sort of developed into a magical practice with my art where certain things would come to me through a vision or through a dream or a message through nature or something like that. And I would want to understand what it meant and go deeper with it. And so I'd go through this period of, I call it like an extended meditation on whatever that message was and including a lot of study and reflection and writing. And um, eventually it would culminate in a painting. So that's a little bit about how my process worked over the years. And then it came to evolve into a sort of um, blend between automatism, which is a surrealist practice of allowing the unconscious to fully express itself without inhibiting it in any way with the conscious mind. So just letting things emerge spontaneously in the creative process. Um, so a blend between that form of working and also working in a sort of idealized way where ideas would come together and I would want to express them in their most ideal form. And so those paintings usually take um, form with a composition that's based in sacred geometry or symmetry um, to express those kind of higher ideals. When you paint something or even when you kind of sketch it out, I'm not sure exactly how the painting process goes. And I know you're self-taught oil painter, but when you're mm -hmm. preparing this, is it something that when you look back on it, do you sometimes think, how did I do that? Or there was another part of me that did that. I'm not sure I was consciously aware of doing that. Cause that's what I think when I look back at my writings or my show, sometimes I feel like I'm positively out of my body, if that makes sense. Oh yeah. Yes. I think there's a creative trance state that takes place uh, where you get completely uh, immersed in the moment, completely focused. And then that allows this other thing to work through you, the spirit to work through you. And there's so many times that I look back at paintings and I just think, how in the world did I ever finish that? Like, and then I just remember all the times that I zoned out and tranced, tranced out in the painting and the long hours of doing that. Now, for people that might not be, um, let's say, as interested or as well versed in this type of subject matter, they may think that this implies the use of drugs or the use of some kind of uh, conscious alternating uh, or altering substance or, or something to that effect. Uh, none of that's used in your art or is it, or is that a necessarily a negative thing? You know, there are different kinds of substances that could positively help somebody as opposed to negatively help. Could you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've had my share of psychedelic experiences in the past um, that have been pretty profound and life changing. And I do use marijuana and 
I use it as a tool in the creative process to help me separate from the everyday world and to um, allow myself to be in a more open, receptive state of mind. So I don't feel like I need a lot of it. And I really do use it specifically for that purpose, but I don't need it every time. And as far as psychedelics go, I feel like I have pretty much integrated the lessons from those, those plants. And I don't feel the need to go into that realm so much anymore. On occasion, I might, but um, in general, though, I feel like dreams and other spiritual inspirations that I get um, through nature are really the main source of inspiration for the work. And any use of like marijuana would just be to sort of help me ease into that trance-like state. And the reason I'm asking you is because I was speaking with a friend of mine yesterday named Laura and Laura mm-hmm. and I were talking about how um, sometimes I feel exactly what you're describing. I don't use marijuana or anything like that, however. And we were talking about the difference between a, let's call it a, a positive spiritual um, expression and someone who, because I know someone who's, who does this or has done this in the past, they're an artist and they openly just opened up to, let's not call it the universe, let's call it something dark, and said anything that wants to take possession of my artistic abilities and to speak through me. They, they were very depressed when they did this, and then their art came, mm-hmm. out, came out very dark. So we were discussing that. I'm curious what you think about that, the difference between someone who uses uh, inspiration and spirit, if you will, as opposed to mm-hmm. someone who just says, whatever comes through me comes through me. There is a difference between that in your opinion. Well, it's interesting because I feel like in a way that's just allowing the unconscious to completely release itself. And sometimes there's a lot of dark things in the unconscious and we can see that as spirits or demons, um, or we can just see that as aspects of ourselves that need to be expressed in some way. Um, I think ultimately if we're doing that kind of work, it's important to, to also be doing some sort of like cleansing and healing work in addition to that and to, to work at integrating those shadow aspects that are coming out and expressing themselves through our art. And yeah, I've definitely in the past when I had a lot of things inside of me that that needed to come out that were sort of holding me back in life, I was doing that kind of art where I was just letting it out completely unfiltered. And some dark stuff did come through. Um, I don't show a lot of that work, but it was very healing and cathartic for me to allow that part of myself to express itself rather than to suppress it or hide it. Um, And it helped me to understand these parts of myself that were, you know, not necessarily pleasant to look at. No, I completely get that. And I think that's a great answer. We were sort of talking about that yesterday on the phone, my friend and I too, because um, there are a lot of things that, as a radio host, when I talk about certain subjects or certain topics, or if we do a show, we talk a little bit about mythology or theology. There's always this mm-hmm. interpretation that uh, a deity, Kronos or Saturn, is very evil. It's the same thing as the devil and Satan. And mm-hmm. there's all these different deities, like there's Lucifer, there's Satan. There's, but at the end of the day, ultimately, although there may be a separation between these forces, forces of evil, as some call it, I don't call it evil, but forces of heaviness and weightfulness and darkness like Saturn, I consider a necessary evil. And I sort of relate that to those dark elements in the unconscious uh, that sort of uh, pull us and drag us down. They're Saturnistic, but they're not pure evil 
or unbalanced evil. They are a necessary evil that actually help us to grow. Oh, yes, definitely. And I, I talk about that in the chapter on Saturn in the book, the necessity of rest and inertia and slowing down and limitation, um, the necessity of going into the darkness and facing the shadow, journeying into the underworld, um, the necessity of facing death and our fear of death. And that's all Saturn work, and it's very important. And one could certainly see it as evil or scary, um, but that's also coming from a very limited perspective, very limited terrestrial perspective, um, and one that is, you know, focused on mortality. And when you look at the bigger picture and our the divine truth of what we are and our immortal nature, then these things become just part of this cyclical unfolding process. And, you know, just as much as we need growth and generation, we need decay and death. And that's just part of the cycle. No, I agree with you. Absolutely. And I know sometimes that seems um, to be evil in and of itself. And I don't know if that is a byproduct of institutional religion or if that is an egotistical thing. Do you have any thoughts on that? Why, why we tend to see even memento mori, even anything that is a reminder of death uh, or, you know, the day, days of the dead in Mexico, which is a very positive celebration. Why do we tend to see those things still as evil? Is that an institutional thing you think, or is that an egotistical thing? Is there some a combination of those things? What do you think? I think it's a combination of uh, religious and psychological elements. You know, if we, if we see God as being only good and incapable of having anything evil, um, within it, then that evil has to be projected somewhere. And so we take, it takes the form of the devil or Satan or Lucifer and project it outward into that form. And, and yet, you know, in the hermetic sense, God is everything. God encompasses everything. And so all the evil that's in the world is in that sense contained within the energy of the deity of the divine. And so it's just a part of it. And it's, um, a necessary part of it. But in our, in our psychology, I think we're so afraid of it that it has to be projected outward just as in the same way that we have a difficult time looking at, at our own shadow and we project it outward onto others. And so we see other people and situations and externalities as being the problem rather than looking within. How would you define then what a demon is? Obviously, I have a pretty good idea of what it is. I've written books and I talk about it on this show, but your perspective, based on what we're discussing, what is a demon? What is a devil? What is Satan? What is Lucifer? Can you, I know that might be a lot to unpack, but can you kind of give us an idea from your study and how you interpret that, what those things are? Well, I tend to view things from the perspective that the hermetic principle all is mind. So everything is happening within the mind the mind of the all. And if we look at that psychologically, then all of the angels and demons and archangels and demons of the planets and the planetary bodies and gods, all of these things, including humanity, they're all part of this one divine mind. And so we have access to all of that within ourselves through connecting to the divine mind. And so in one sense, it can just be looked at purely psychologically. The demon is an aspect of our psyche that we haven't addressed properly, that needs attention, that's um, become harmful because it's been neglected in some way. And so we can 
give it attention and work with it and even do like exorcist type of work to expel it, whatever we want to do to work with that. Um, and that's one way of looking at it. But at the same time, I don't think it's just psychological. I think that demons are a real aspect of, of our reality. And sometimes they can also come to us from outside of ourselves, I feel. And I've had experiences with this where um, demonic energy comes in and you can recognize it as being completely um, foreign and something that shouldn't be there. And so then you have to go about the work of figuring out how to, how to deal with that, how to get rid of it if it's unwanted. Um, Do you believe other people can, maybe it's ritualistic, ceremonial, or maybe it's just a simple, which at the base of magic and ceremony anyway is will, but it's a simple projection of will that some people can immerse themselves in this type of thing and then project that, quote, demonic energy onto somebody else. Is that possible? Yeah, I do believe that that's possible. Yeah. There's a really great... I'm sorry. Maybe unconscious. Just that it might be unconscious as well. Yeah, I mean, when we walk into a room um, and we sometimes can feel somebody's presence in the room or we're in a room and somebody walks in, we can kind of feel their presence. And, you, you know, sometimes you feel that the person that just walked in the room or someone who's in the room with you has a really heavy or strange energy that might not necessarily be a negative thing. Uh, but you can feel that sometimes there are some people that just there's something off about them. And I don't mean about personality. I mean that there's an energy. Uh, I've experienced this with family members. There's just something mm-hmm. off, something wrong. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe that's the unconscious projection of those energies. It could be a lot of different things, but I mean that's kind of the feeling I get about that. Yeah, I've I've felt that with people that have been using a lot of drugs, actually, and not in a good, positive way, you know, um, where I think that that sort of behavior over time creates holes or vacuums within yes. the energy box, creating space that is easily filled by whatever entities might be in the vicinity, you know, good or bad, um, and most likely bad. <laughs> Yeah, I've had I've had some guests on before who've said that they, they call it a walk-in uh, using those types of substances repeatedly and obsessively. It kind of does create what you just said, holes, and then that allows for things to walk in and, and take possession of those uh, voids. Yeah, exactly. There's a really great quote by a German mystic. I, I would imagine you're aware of Meister Eckhart. And he said, mm-hmm. uh, if you, because actually you're from Germany, right? You are German, correct? I was born there, and I have German heritage, but my parents were not German. Oh, okay, you were born in Germany. I just remember I remember reading that in your bio. Um, if you uh, if you fight your death, you'll feel the demons tearing away at your life. But if you have the right attitude to death, you will be able to see that the devils are really angels setting your spirit free. How do you think? Uh, how do you feel about a quote like that? I I, I always thought that, that was a pretty interesting uh, quote, a pretty profound statement. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I think ultimately, like I said before, everything in the hermetic sense is part of that divine light of God. And what we perceive as being evil or dark is just the furthest removed from that pure light, that divine light. But it's still a part of that. And so these challenges that we face when we're going through dark periods in our life or maybe battling demons, um, so to speak, it's all part of this process of helping us to evolve back towards the light. So even the darkest things can be seen in a, in that respect. Yes, they most certainly can. We have about three minutes before the break here. I want to go ahead and just tap the brakes. 
let people know where they can find you. I know I gave out the website already, but we have new people coming in and out all the time. So what is the website? And I know you have a Patreon as well, if you'd like to give that out. Yeah, the website is just my name. It's marlena7bremner.com. That's M-A-R-L-E-N-E-S-E-V-E-N-B-R-E-M-N-E-R. And I've also got a Patreon where you can subscribe for as little as a dollar a month. Um, There's a blog and then all kinds of rewards um, for different tiers. And my Patreon account is just 7art, all lowercase, all together. All right, 7art, and then just the the number spelled out, S-E-V-E-N. We're going to have both of those links. They're on our social media pages if you haven't uh, been able to find the website, if you maybe you spelled it wrong or something. There are links there on our Twitter and on our Facebook account. Uh, Marlena, the book we're going to get into in the rest of tonight's broadcast, Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy, uh, in about a minute and a half to two minutes, if you could uh, try to summarize maybe what exactly is hermetic philosophy, what is creative alchemy, not just the book, but what exactly are those ideas, those concepts, those areas of study? Well, hermetic philosophy goes back to Greco-Egyptian times in the Hellenistic era, um, basically the teachings of Hermes Trismegistus, Hermes the Thrice Greatest, and they are um, based on a number of texts that are attributed to Hermes um, that teach about the nature of the cosmos and God and humanity's relationship to all things um, and the ascent of the soul through the seven spheres. And so this book is really about um, going into the history of Hermetic philosophy and the theory of it and um, associating that with alchemy and processes of transmutation that help us to evolve through these um, seven spheres or planetary energies that are expressing themselves through us. So for listeners who might not be aware of what that is, we're talking about the seven classical planets, their energies, their signatures, and what they represent uh, psychologically as well as symbolically uh, in other respects to nature and ourselves? Yes. Okay. Hermetic philosophy and creative alchemy uh, you talk about the Emerald Tablet uh, and uh, the journey, as you said, through the seven spheres. That's the book. Where can listeners find the book? Uh, well, it's on the Inner Traditions website. It's also on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and several other booksellers. Um, if you go to my website on the homepage, there's ac- actually a list of all the places that you can find it. And there's also an audiobook version that I narrated. Oh, there's an audiobook version. Excellent. Uh, yeah. Did you do that separate? I'm just curious. Did you do that separate of inner traditions or did they set that up for you? Yeah, that was through inner traditions. Okay, excellent. This your first book? It is. Yeah. And I I saw that you have another one uh, coming out as well. What is that? 2023 at some point? Yeah, it should be coming out in July. And that one's called the Hermetic Marriage of Art and Alchemy. All right. Well, Marlena Seven Brimner is our guest this evening. If you type that name in dot com, you'll find her website. Marlena, thank you for coming on the show. We've got three full segments to go. We'll talk about the book right when we get back from break. The music tonight, as always, White Bat Audio. You can listen to them for free on YouTube. They let us use their music for free. If you'd like to contact The Secret Teachings, myself, email rdgable at yahoo.com or tstradio at protonmail.com. Subscribe to our archive for the ad-free shows, the montages, the digital copies of my books, including my book, Occult Arcana, very similar to what we're talking about tonight. All of that at www.thesecretteachings.info. A lot more after this. Don't go anywhere.
The Secret Teachings radio show is on Facebook and Twitter. Just search facebook.com forward slash The Secret Teachings to like us and TST underscore underscore radio to tweet with us. If you enjoy The Secret Teachings and want to hold years of Ryan's research in your hands, visit the website and grab a physical and digital copy of Ryan's books. Occult Arcana will introduce you to sacred myths, folklore, magic, and alchemy. The technological elixir will take you from transhumanism and AI to black goo and UFOs. Food philosophy will change your mind about what we call food, germ theory, and geoengineering. And remember, shipping is always included. Some restrictions exist for international. Visit thesecretteachings.info. From Ground Zero to the Secret Teachings, keep your dial tuned to Ground Zero Radio. If you'd like to hear more of the Secret Teachings, if you missed a show or part of a show, sign up to the ever-expanding archive at thesecretteachings.info. When you subscribe for a month or a year, you get access to the full show archive to every show after it airs. You can download and stream unlimited episodes and share your login with friends or family. With your subscription, you can also get access on the website to all of Ryan's digital books and the ever-growing montage archive. Just visit thesecretteachings.info and click on the Donate Subscribe tab at the top of the page. Use the secure PayPal link and start your membership today. By subscribing, you support The Secret Teachings, Ryan, and yourself. This is one of the best discussions I've been on in a long time. You guys are right on it. Howdy, this is Joe Mars, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings. If anyone can hear this broadcast, I'm still on Earth. This is the frequency of Ground Zero Radio, Ground Zero with Clyde Lewis, and The Secret Teachings with myself, Ryan Gable. Marlena Seven Brimner is my guest this evening on The Secret Teachings Radio. She is an artist and an author. Her first book, Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy, The Emerald Tablet, The Corpus Hermeticum, and The Journey Through the Seven Spheres. In the first segment, we talked a little bit about her artwork, a little bit about her background and inspiration. And we're going to focus now on the book for probably the, the full length of the next three segments, including this segment. Uh, this book is uh, really fascinating, Marlene. I have to say that I'm impressed by it. I don't often, uh, although the publishing company sent me a review copy of this, uh, I would have bought this if I'd have seen it at the store, which uh, I want you to take as a very strong compliment because I don't buy a lot of new books. I, I tend to buy a lot of older stuff uh, where I believe I can trust uh, the research more. So this book is fantastic, my friend. This is amazing work. Uh, you should be extremely proud of yourself, as I'm sure that you are. Tell us a little bit about this new book that you have. Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much. That's um, very kind of you to say. Thank you. Um, well, this book was really the product of many, many years of study and practice and um, deep inner exploration and research. Um I think, as I mentioned previously, as I was developing my creative process and teaching myself to oil paint, I was also deep, deeply entrenched in the study of the occult and exploring magic and alchemy. And eventually this led me to a desire to want to understand more of the, the roots of these practices, um, where they were coming from and, um, 
this led me towards hermeticism. And um, from there, I really wanted to understand the original text. And so I began reading the Emerald Tablet and the Corpus Hermeticum and all the various fragments and um, sort of putting it all together in my mind, along with my understanding of alchemy and the creative process. And that's really what gave birth to the book over many, many years. Um, Not to mention many years before that of just exploring spirituality and magic and practicing body work and energy work. So this book really um, not only gets into the Hermetica, but it gets into esoteric anatomy and how to relate these seven planetary spheres with our own energy bodies and with the things that we're experiencing in our physical world. Um, as well as psychologically and mythologically. Now, there's a lot of words that you used. I'm very familiar with those words, but for listeners who might not know or who might need a refresher course, could you try to define simply what is Hermetica? Uh, what exactly is the uh, definition? Uh, I know there's kind of different definitions of alchemy. There's spiritual alchemy, physical alchemy. But can you try to break those words down for, for people that and even including myself, uh, you know, give me a different okay. perspective even yet yeah, to try to explain those to, to some of us who might not be aware of what they mean. Yeah, sure. Uh, so first of all, hermeticism um, is the term that most people use. And essentially that refers broadly to the entire Western occult tradition, Western esoteric tradition. Um, so things like Rosicrucianism and theosophy, the magic of the golden dawn of Aleister Crowley, um, Freemasonry can be included in there as well. Um, angelic magic, the works of John Dee and Agrippa, all of this can sort of be included in this umbrella term hermeticism. And this also includes hermetism. Um, and hermetism is a much more specific term that refers to not only the teachings of Hermes, but the specific uh, corpus of texts that were that emerged during the first few centuries of the Common Era. And these texts were attributed to Hermes Trismegistus as their author. And um, for those of you who don't know, Hermes Trismegistus, the thrice greatest Hermes, was a syncretic form combining the Greek Hermes with the ancient Egyptian deity Thoth. Um, And these gods came together and were worshipped in Hermopolis in ancient Egypt. And so a lot of these Hermetic teachings are really rooted in ancient Egypt. Um, So the Hermetica, as a term, that refers to these different texts, uh, which include the Emerald Tablet and the Corpus Hermeticum, um, fragments from the early church fathers, uh, excerpts of Stobius, and the more recently discovered uh, Coptic texts that were found at Nag Hammadi. Um, all, All of these things are considered Hermetica classical hermetica. So this relates to Gnosticism as well. Yeah. Hermeticism developed kind of concurrently with Gnosticism. So there's a lot of Gnostic influence as well. Okay. Um, And yeah, the Coptic Hermetica discovered at Nag Hammadi were found amongst many other Gnostic texts. What about, what about Sufism or like Kabbalah? Are these things sort of part of the Hermeticum or is that, are those totally different things? Well, there were certainly Jewish influences in the Hermetica um, and Arabic influences as well, Iranian. But um, Kabbalah would be considered more of Hermeticism. So these different things that emerged over the centuries following these early texts. So 
alchemy and astrology and magic, Kabbalistic magic. Um, these all sort of evolved and developed over the centuries and are considered within that term hermeticism, but they, you don't really see that so much in the early hermetica. Okay. And then when you have, you have Hermes and then you have obviously his, his relationship uh, with Mercury, uh, Thoth or Toth, however you choose to pronounce it, of Egypt. These are mm-hmm. basically the same gods. Um, mm-hmm. They may, might have different attributes. So can you kind of break that down? Like, who are these gods? What exactly do they represent? And I know you commented in the first part of the book uh, something that I, I learned right away. I, I didn't I don't think I realized they were different uh, Hermes trismegistuses. They're, they're different. Uh, there's like, what would you say? There's like two or three of them, correct? Yeah, there's the um, the first Hermes, um, which was Thoth. And according to Manetho, um, Thoth was said to have lived before the flood. So um, he preserved the sacred writings and transmitted them um, through hieroglyphs on stone. And it was the second Hermes who was um, related to the first Hermes through Agatha Damon, uh, the second Hermes who um, preserved these teachings and transcribed them into books. So yeah, the first and the second Hermes um, being Thoth and then Hermes Trismegistus. So have you ever thought about, or, and, and maybe if, if it's in the book, excuse me, maybe I, you know, skimmed over it and didn't realize it, but that there's a relationship therefore between Thoth and Hermes as Thoth lived before the, the flood and, you know, the very, well, there's different kinds of floods, different time periods, but before the flood and then preserves the, these sacred teachings or these sacred writings. And that's very similar to, Manu in India, very similar, obviously, to the Noah story. Uh, But we have these flood stories all over the world, and we have these stories that are preserved all over the world of not only a flood, but of sacred knowledge being preserved from before the flood and then taken to a sacred place after the flood. Um, Can you speak to that? Well, that's not really my area of focus, but I did just watch that Graham Hancock documentary about that subject. Yeah, I think it's absolutely fascinating and very intriguing. and I think there's a lot of merit to his ideas, especially just considering the um, how many cultures have that flood myth and that story of, you know, a, a sage or a wise person surviving the flood and transmitting the sacred wisdom from before. I would recommend so. then, if you haven't uh, researched that much, I'd recommend reading his book, Underworld. It's a really big book, but he talks very extensively about this. He doesn't really talk a lot about uh, Thoth or Egypt, but he talks a lot about India. And what you're just, I'm just saying what you're describing in your book is like identical to the Indian mythos. It's really incredible how they're, I mean, which I think, and that's kind of his proposal too, is that this is all coming sort of from the same source, which leads me to ask you, Thoth sort Mm -hmm. of lives before the flood. Flood is maybe a a term that could mean a lot of things, but um, are we talking potentially about I know this is a buzzword for some people, an Atlantis-like civilization, uh, or is that something you've not researched either? Well, I haven't really um, gotten into that research yet, but I do sense that there was an older race of people um, that existed before um, the flood and these cataclysms that Graham Hancock talks about. Um, I don't know if they were Atlanteans. I don't know what they called themselves. Maybe they were the Kemetians, the more ancient Egyptian culture that lived there before, the Egyptians that we know of, um, that I don't know. I have not done enough research. Well, it's okay. I, I appreciate you being honest. If, if you don't know, that's that's totally fine. Um, wh- yeah. 
let me ask you this though. It, it, this doesn't really take a lot of research to, to, um, to answer this question though. In your opinion, if you look at a place like Egypt and you see um, how the culture seemed to decline uh, in terms of their architecture and, and the building, like, you know, the later pyramids were less uh, sophisticated than the earlier pyramids. Um, I think we have a similar thing like that in terms of, um, well, prob- I, would, I would assume like the, the Hermeticum, the Corpus Hermeticum, the different Hermetic texts, the uh, pyramid texts, the Edfu building texts. It seems like understanding of this wisdom has declined along with knowledge of how to build things and how to, you know, basically uh, understand nature and the universe. Does that make sense? And what do you think about that? Oh, yeah, I think that's fascinating to look at uh, the timeline of Egyptian history and just to see how um, the technology did seem to be declining rather than evolving and progressing forward. And that's typically how, in our modern mind, we tend to think of things as being on this track of continual progression. Um, but that's not really the case with ancient Egypt. So it does seem to indicate that there was a more advanced civilization that the Egyptians that we know of, the ancient Egyptians, um, as far as we know, they inherited this civilization. And maybe even some of their structures, like the pyramids, are much, much older than what the Orthodox um, history has determined. Now, as for this hermetic tradition, generally speaking, um, how does this apply? I'm going to ask you a two-part question. How does this apply to 2022 or 2021 modern-day contemporary man where, although certainly a, an immense amount of people around the world are interested in this type of thing, um, how does this apply to the world today? And I guess a second part of that question would be because people have an aversion to the word. How exactly do you define magic? Uh, like what exactly, what part does magic and hermeticism have to play in the modern day? Well, I think in our modern day, so many of us have lost touch with our connection to the divine and with the sense of our own immortal essence and what we truly are. And humans over the centuries, we haven't really changed that much. You know, we're still essentially the same um, beings that we were 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. Uh, We're still dealing with the same things. And that's why these teachings and mythology and creation stories, they're all still so important to us. And I, I think it's really important that we continue to understand them in our own way and in our own time and to make sense of them. Um, in the context of the world that we're living in now and to find our place within these stories and to understand how they can um, illuminate our own inner world and help us to navigate reality. What are we actually dealing with here? And um, if we can come to understand that through magical practice and through developing our will and purifying the mind and, um, working with the unconscious and finding that unification of the conscious and the unconscious world within us, we really can become more effective beings, um, effective agents in our own destiny. Now I know that, um, you said you saw that Graham Hancock show on Netflix. I'm, I'm just curious. And that's the reason I asked this question about contemporary, uh, man and these types of, um, esoteric uh, stories and traditions because I read this article from the guardian. I don't know if you saw it and it said that Graham Hancock's show ancient apocalypse is the most dangerous show on Netflix. And it says that it's a preposterous theory and 
why are we allowing this to be, you know, on television was the question proposed by the, the news article by the guardian. And, um, that is a very strange thing, uh, in a time where we have access to so much information, why any news outlet would suggest that this is dangerous to ask questions, why it's dangerous to, to think about these things. Um, do you, do you think that working back around to the, the question, do you think that uh, her, hermetic teachings or esoterica or occultism or the secret teachings, whatever generally term we want to apply to this, do you think that these kinds of things are um, in danger today as they might have been, let's say, four or 5,000 years ago, maybe then by uh, or 10,000 years ago by a flood? Uh, are they in danger today in perhaps different ways where you have certain institutions of power, uh, could be the media, could be whatever, um, that seek to really suppress uh, the spiritual side of man. At least that's how I interpret it. I don't know if that makes sense. I don't know if you have a thought on that. Well, I've come in and out of feeling like that. Right now, I don't really feel so much like that. I don't feel threatened that these teachings are going to be suppressed or censored. And I think there's too many of us at this point that are interested in these things, practicing these things. And now we're all connected through the internet and social media and forming networks and becoming more strong in our, you know, spiritual discourse and magical discourse. So I, I don't really see that censorship happening. Um, I do wonder about the state of the world and climate change and the possibility of uh, cataclysms happening in our time. And Graham Hancock gets into this. And in that sense, the possibility of losing access to some of this wisdom and the importance of um, continuing the tradition and getting it out there in as many forms as we can, um, sharing it with each other, you know, um, verbally and in the written form um, and visually. And so I think about that. Um, I'm not really a, a doomsayer or anything, and I'm not a prepper or anything like that, but um, I do have a little bit of concern of some of this ancient wisdom being lost again. And if, you know, I, if, if I may, I think my concern, and I mean, that, that question is, let's call it um, ground level. If we go above the ground, uh, in my mind, I think my, my concern is that what's happening is, although it's very widespread, we have a lot of people that are interested in these things, is that it's basically my concern is distortion. And I feel like there's a mm. tremendous amount of distortion about this type of stuff where it gets mixed into... Uh, well, basically, I, I would just call it delusion and fantasy. Um, yeah, that's that's my opinion. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that there is that danger, especially with the way that social media just distorts things and um, dumbifies things, um, you know, making them appealing to the masses, but kind of losing the, the thread along the way. Certainly. OK, so let's go back to the book and. The segue question um, that I'm thinking, I think, ties this together is when we look at, let's say, secret societies or mystery schools, this is something that's always fascinated me. You see that people would go into a state of seclusion. Uh, sometimes they would be bound or they'd be blindfolded. They'd be put in the sarcophagus. They'd abstain from uh, social interaction. They'd abstain from sexual activity. They'd abstain from meat and alcohol most of the time. And you have this long tradition, whether it's in Greece or Rome or ancient Egypt, it's all over the world, uh, what they call initiation into the types of things we're talking about, uh, the secret teachings of all ages, if you will. So mm -hmm. those practices were typically um, preserved for usually the, I don't, I don't want to say the wealthy, but 
usually for the elite or people that just understood them and, and really grasped them. Um, there was a clear distinction between the average person who was typically illiterate and the people that understood the mechanics of the universe. All this stuff, when we're talking about hermetics and alchemy and the secret teachings, um, and we're talking, we just use the word teachings, like, can you generally describe that? Like, what exactly are these things? What exactly are these teachings? What exactly, I know you already defined hermetica and alchemy, but what exactly is all this stuff? Is it science? Is it math? Is it history? Is it philosophy? Is it all those things and more? Oh, man. I mean, it is all those things and more. I think primarily it's mystical, it's spiritual. Um, You can see it as philosophy, and that's how I've kind of presented it in the book, but it is a spiritual, mystical path. Um, And the way that I present it in the book is as a path of self-initiation. And we can, you know, find organizations that will do, um, that will initiate us and, you know, go through different titles or grades and things like that. But um, the hermetic path, I mean, the term hermetic itself refers to solitude, to a solitary practice. And so I think it's important to, um, to be able to approach it in that manner and to be able to read these ancient texts, like the Corpus Hermeticum, um, as initiatory texts you know, and to meditate upon them and study them and allow them to work within us. I'm wondering about alchemy because I've, I've also thought, um, we read a different, a bunch of different definitions of alchemy. Uh, we read the, like the, I, I don't know if I call it the mainstream definition or the idea that you do something physical with like an actual container and you put it in horse manure and, you know, but I think at the, at the core, I think what it's referring to is the vessel is the body and the soul is of course the alchemical substance. And you're going through a process by which you're transforming, let's say lead uh, or gross matter into gold or sun, you know, the sun basically like like being a son of God or a daughter of God, uh, as opposed to a son or daughter of man. That's part of the secret teachings and the mystery schools. Um, How do you feel about that? alchemy in that regard. Do you think that my interpretation of that is valid? Uh, what do you think about those old definitions of alchemy dealing with like physical vessels and, and horse manure or something like that? Mm-hmm. How do you explain that? Well, my understanding of alchemy is through the creative process, but I've had um, conversations and training and um, exposure to actual physical laboratories and people that are working with alchemy in the physical world. Um, so it's both really, you know, it's a physical art and it can be done in the laboratory, but it's also a spiritual art that can be done internally. And we can also make it physical in other ways. It doesn't necessarily have to be with beakers and flasks and working with lead and mercury and dangerous materials and, you know, things like that. Um, we can bring the alchemical process into any physical domain that we want. And so, For me, it's painting. For someone else, it might be writing. For someone else, it might be raising their child or cooking a meal or um, writing a song. So there's all these different ways that we can work with alchemy in the creative process. And essentially, if you read the Emerald Tablet, it is about a cyclical creative process, working with the elements and um, the polarities and the macrocosm and the microcosm, the inner and the outer, and understanding these relationships between what's above and what's below what's within and what's without through some sort of physical process. So for me with painting, 
it becomes like a dialogue in the same way that an alchemist looking into their vessel is watching their matter go through these different transmutations. I'm watching that occur on the canvas. Someone else might be watching that occur um, in a song that they're writing, you know, something like that. So I see it as both. And one is not better than the other. Um, One does not exclude the other. Um, A lot of, you know, practical alchemists will have the attitude that spiritual alchemy or psychological alchemy, creative alchemy, these things aren't real alchemy. And I just think that's a very limited perspective. Agreed. Um, And on the other hand, you know, a lot of people will say that real alchemy is, is um, just a varsity, you know, it's, it's not real. It's um, the search for fool's gold and all of that um, puffers, if you will. But I don't think that's accurate either. And I think I've seen, in fact, alchemists working in the laboratory that don't have the spiritual element as part of their work or somehow it's lacking or missing. And then it doesn't really, it's not real alchemy in that sense because what, what the spiritual are, work so, together. Okay. So what, what are they trying to do in a laboratory? Are they trying to literally turn one metal into another or is it something a little bit different than that? Well, a lot of times it's um, making spagyrics, you know, so um, separating out the three, principles from a material from a plant or a stone which would be like the the salt or the ashes and um the oil which is distilled out of it and um the spirit which is acquired through fermentation so these different processes that um extract the three vital principles the salt the spirit and the oil which equate with the body um the spirit and the soul and then recombining them into a holistic medicine. And so a lot of alchemists are working in the spagyric sense and other alchemists are indeed trying to make the philosopher's stone or transmuting metals, um, working with a number of different processes, um, namely with minerals. Is the, in your opinion, if you have an opinion on this, is the homunculus or the little man, the little person, is that kind of like the Christian concept of being born again, making that little person come to life inside of us, inside the vessel? Yeah, I do see it like that. Yeah. Um, almost like the, the birth of the, the divine child. Yes. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, yeah. Marlena Brimner or Marlena Seven Brimner. I know you told me mm-hmm. you can just I can call you seven, but for the show, Marlena Seven Brimner, the website, if you type that name in uh, dot com and then you have the Patreon page as well. Correct. Yes. All right. Yeah. Seven and art. Seven art. S-E-V-E-N-A-R-T. Uh, if you'd like to visit our website, www.thesecretteachings.info or our social media pages, we have her linked up there as well. Uh, the book, where can listeners find the book? Uh, it is Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy. We're going to go into more detail in that book when we come back from break. But where can listeners find a copy of the book? Uh, well, if you go to my website and you just scroll down on the homepage, there is a list of all the different sellers where you can buy the book and also a link to the audio version narrated by me. All right. Narrated by her. Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy, the Emerald Tablet, the Corpus Hermeticum, and the Journey Through the Seven Spheres. I want to talk a little bit about the Emerald Tablet specifically when we come back from break. I have a lot of feelings and thoughts on that uh, from what I've witnessed in, let's call it the radio business or seeing people at conferences tending to really grossly distort and misrepresent what the Emerald Tablet is or is supposed to be. So we'll talk a little bit about that in the next hour, a whole other hour coming up here on The Secret Teachings with Marlena Seven Brimner. Really wonderful conversation, great guest, fantastic book. 
other than recommending my own book, Cult Arcana, uh, I'll recommend Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy. Go get a copy of that uh, if you have the ability to do so. There's more of the secret teachings coming up after this. rdgable at yahoo.com or tstradio at protonmail.com. You can subscribe to our archive on the website. It is discounted for the whole year. You get a lot of extra goodies and a private RSS feed. www.thesecretteachings.info You'll also get my digital books with your subscription, including my book, Occult Arcana. Again, www.thesecretteachings.info The music, White Bat Audio. There's a whole more, whole lot more after this. Don't go anywhere. Broadcasting from somewhere between the normal and abnormal. A collection of question marks. No reason, no explanation. Just a prolonged nightmare in which fear, loneliness, and the unexplainable walk hand in hand through the shadows. It's The Secret Teachings on Ground Zero Radio. You are listening to The Secret Teachings. To contact the show, to share information and your opinion, or give recommendations, email R D. Gable at yahoo.com. Visit the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the secret teachings, or visit the website at www.thesecretteachings.info. If you're looking for a great gift that keeps on giving this year, check out one of my four books for the holiday season. Occult Arcana is a monumental collection of esoteric and occult lore. The technological elixir looks at UFOs, demonology in the music industry, and the soul and spirit in relation to modern technology. Liberty Shrugged, my new book, takes you on a historical journey through the concepts of natural liberty and provides a different angle on the American Revolution. Food philosophy explores food industry propaganda, advertising tricks, and geoengineering. Get all four books only at thesecretteachings.info in softcover or digital. That's thesecretteachings.info. If you'd like to hear more of The Secret Teachings, if you missed a show or part of a show, sign up to the ever-expanding archive at thesecretteachings.info. When you subscribe for a month or a year, you get access to the full show archive to every show after it airs. You can download and stream unlimited episodes and share your login with friends or family. With your subscription, you can also get access on the website to all of Ryan's digital books and the ever-growing montage archive. Just visit thesecretteachings.info and click on the Donate Subscribe tab at the top of the page. Use the secure PayPal link and start your membership today. By subscribing, you support The Secret Teachings, Ryan, and yourself. People ask me all the time what they can do to take control of their lives when facing a daily onslaught of dis- and misinformation. I say take control of your body and mind with water filtration. Visit www.thesecretteachings.info and click on our affiliate sponsor link with Pro One Water Filters at the top of the page to search for a water filter for the home, camping trip, and even the shower. They filter countless contaminants and make a wonderful gift for friends, family, and yourself. That's Pro One Water Filters at thesecretteachings.info. Hello. Folks, this is Jordan Maxwell, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings, excellent shows with your host, Ryan Gable. Think about your hero when you're at ground zero and call up to the fall of back to me. 
Attention, you are tuned into restricted airspace. Tune out immediately. This is the frequency of the secret teachings on Ground Zero Radio. Hi everyone, this is Mark Passio and you're listening to The Secret Teachings with Ryan Gable. listening to the secret teachings radio i'm your host ryan gable thank you so much for joining us this morning this afternoon tonight whenever and wherever you are listening around the world if you'd like to listen to the secret teachings after the broadcast monday through friday 10 p.m to midnight pacific search the show on any radio or podcast player you can listen for free and download the show for free you can also subscribe to our archive to get access to the full show archive without any of the montage uh or excuse me, without any of the advertisements and the montage archive, it's all at www.thesecretteachings.info. Marlena Seven Brimner is our guest this evening. Her book, really fantastic book, Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy, The Emerald Tablet, The Corpus Hermeticum, and The Journey Through the Seven Spheres. I'm really curious about The Emerald Tablet Because I've been to a lot of conferences and I've listened to a lot of radio shows and a lot of researchers. And I think you and I are in agreement based on what your book says about the tablet. I've heard a lot of people making up outrageous claims about the Emerald Tablet. I don't don't know if you've come across this. uh, and, and, And I guess if you have, I'd like to get your take on that. But what exactly is the Emerald Tablet? And uh, what do you make of people kind of stretching the truth about it or being very disingenuous about it? Well, first of all, just to clarify, this is the Emerald Tablet, the Tabulus Maradina, as it's called. And that's distinct from the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, which was a channeled um, work of a more recent origin. So the Emerald Tablet that we're speaking of is much more ancient, and it's sort of legendary. Uh, We don't really know if it ever really existed or where it came from. There are different ideas about where it came from, and it's said that it was originally discovered by Alexander the Great in the tomb of Hermes. And um, then it went through its a whole process of um, being lost and found again. And it, the whole history is actually accounted for um, by Dennis William Hawk in his excellent book on the Emerald Tablet. Um, so that I would recommend that in terms of just understanding the history of it in a legendary sense. Um, but what we do know is that there are a number of Arabic translations that were found, the earliest of which goes back to Habir ibn Hayyan, also known as Geber. Um, and that's the one that I refer to in the book. And it's just a short series of hermetic precepts. And really, it describes the process of creation that's happening at all times, not just in the beginning, but at all times. And it's the source for that very well-known hermetic axiom as above, so below, except it's stated a little more eloquently in the tablet. Um, According to Geber's version, uh, we have that which is above is from that which is below, and that which is below is from that which is above, working the miracles of one. Um, So also a sort of reference to the one thing, the one as the unified nature of all of everything, of all of reality, everything that we know, the entire cosmos being part of one 
unified divine energy. That which is above so, is like that which is below. That that hermetic principle, that hermetic axiom, that is something that um, I think that's also been sort of distorted by some people today. But that is such a sophisticated concept, and so is the idea of the all. I think these are sophisticated concepts for our modern interpretation of quote ancient man that was supposed to be very primitive. Like these are very very sophisticated ideas that. Uh, had to have been formed over hundreds, thousands of years. And these aren't things that just develop overnight, per se. Uh, what do you think of that? Oh, yeah. And also just fascinating that they had this understanding of the relationship between the macrocosm and the microcosm when, yes. you know, according to our understanding, they couldn't have possibly been able to really even see the entire macrocosm. And now we can look at, you know, images of, the cosmos and dark matter and how it reflects the neural networks in our own brains and the way that this different planetary systems um, reflect the, the way that atoms work and, um, you know, the orbiting of the planets, just like the protons and neutrons and electrons and all of that. Um, I've once thought that so maybe, just, maybe the reason, maybe they didn't have telescopes and technology like we have, but the idea that all things are connected simply by observing what could be seen on earth, you could sort of, imply through, you know, I guess, a, a, a an exported projection that the rest of the universe looked very much like what we see here uh, in front of our physical faces. Does that make sense? Even if it wasn't high yeah. technology. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, even just observing from our perspective on earth uh, without having telescopes and microscopes and all of that, just observing nature and the cycles of the planets and being able to see the correspondences and observing those over time and, you know, coming to understand these as laws of the universe. Yes, certainly. Uh, as above, yeah. so below. So that idea, again, very sophisticated. What else is in the Emerald Tablet? So, yeah, as above, so below, working the miracles of one. And then it goes on to say, as all things were from one. So this hermetic idea that everything emerges from a unified source. And that unified source might be called God, it might be called the divine, the all, the one, the supreme, the father, the mother, whatever we want to call it, there's one unified source, which is essentially pure light. And it's beyond everything that we can really um, fully know here in our physical embodiment. But we can sort of access that through rising up within ourselves to these higher levels of consciousness. Um, but in essence, everything is emanating from this one source, and it's all a part of this one energy field. So it's kind of like a tree, tree of life, and then the branches and the leaves grow out of it, and the roots grow downward, et cetera, kind of as an image. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In the hermetic conception, it's viewed as um, a series of concentric spheres, you know, nested spheres emanating from a source, um, or the outer sphere being the one that encompasses everything within it, that, that one, that all. Yeah, I think, um, I don't remember if it was Manly Hall or Alan Watts, but um, that I'm sure both of them had, t had talked about it. It's the idea of what the monad, the circle with the dot in the middle, the dot is mm -hmm. uh, infinity, and then the circle is the cre is the, basically the sphere of creation, everything in the universe, et cetera. Or, you know, you could look at it in the reverse, uh, that the center is is creation, the outside is the, uh, the circumference is the outside, that's basically God, but same kind of concept, same kind of an idea. And that's where the sacred geometry comes into play. I'm sure you've seen, you know, pe people break down uh, the book of Genesis and show that the whole story of Genesis, whether that's coming from the Bible or it's coming from another sacred text, because uh, there are other creation stories, it's very geometrical. 
Uh, it's a sophisticated <laughs> form of understanding of, of geometry in those stories. Oh yeah. All with the flower of life and the way that those different spheres are connected and emanating from each other to create this interconnected network and how that is mirrored through the six days of creation and all of that. That's so fascinating to me, especially as an artist working with geometry and, you know, using that to form the basis of paintings and in the creative process. I find that very fascinating. I've also heard, um, in fact, I think it was Graham Hancock. We mentioned him earlier. Graham Hancock talked about how when you look at uh, the procession of the equinoxes, there's a relationship between that or various uh, periods of time within the, the procession of the equinoxes that relates to uh, Hermes and that relates to, he doesn't say it directly, but there's, the, because he, ta- he talks about the numbers and procession and how many books that uh, Hermes supposedly wrote and the number of books he supposedly wrote that are, uh, as you related in your book, they're basically un- uh, undefinable and unseeable, that they're basically the, the foundation of nature and that you can see them or you can learn these, these things that, that Hermes wrote by observing the mechanics of the heavens. So math, geometry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're not physical books, as some people might think, uh, or maybe they are, uh, but I thought that was interesting. It, it relates to processional uh, astronomy, uh, astrology, and the mechanics of, of nature and the universe. Oh, yeah, I would like to explore that a little bit more, but as far as what you're saying in terms of um, the books being hid away within the depths of the soul and not necessarily being physical books, but accessible through these different disciplines, astronomy and magic and alchemy and mathematics and geometry, all of that. I I totally agree that these are the teachings of Hermes. And, um, you know, they're not just restricted to ancient Egypt or Greece, but I feel like these teachings were given all over the world and by different, you know, forms of Hermes going by different names. Um, Essentially the teachings come from the divine mind which humanity has access to. And so they're just, they're a gift of this deity that exists within us, exists within all things that has existed for all time. Which is probably the reason that Hermes is referred to, or Mercury is referred to as the messenger, the messenger of the gods, bringing this knowledge to man. Exactly. Yeah. Would that then put Hermes or let's say Mercury uh, or uh, any other like Thoth, any other God, would that put them into the same category as Prometheus? And, and, and I mean, I think so. And if that's the case, Prometheus was punished for his deeds. So how do you kind of look at those two, those two ideas? Are they just two separate stories? Or are they kind of similar? I mean, there's correlations, but um, I think they are two separate stories. Um, I don't see that sort of punishment in the mythology surrounding Thoth or Hermes. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't really see that. So I feel like Thoth is such an important deity in the Egyptian pantheon. He was uh, very closely connected with the creator deity, you know, so um, there wasn't an antagonistic relationship there. The, the, the reason I bring that up is because I also agree with you. I don't think that there's really much of a, um, a direct correlation, but there is something interesting I read uh, about how Thoth or Hermes, again, whatever name you want to use, came to uh, Amon uh, and said, I had, I basically invented the language and I want to teach it to the people. Um, and Amon said in the, in the story, your invention will enable them to hear many things. This is a quote, hear many things without being properly taught. And they will imagine that they have come to know much. Well, for the most part, they will know nothing. So Amon told Hermes or Thoth, 
don't teach man language. So there's kind of a correlation there. When I read that story, I thought, well, that's kind of maybe sort of similar. He wasn't punished, but you know, the king told him or God told him, Amon told him, don't teach man this, just like don't bring man fire. Does that make sense? That's the reason I asked the question, because I do see a slight correlation there. Just interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I Yeah. And, you know, there are places in the Hermetica where, you know, it's said not to share these teachings with the many, with the profane, because they don't have the ears to hear it, Um, that it's really reserved for those who are ready for it, for the initiates. and I think that's true to a certain extent, um, you know, that these teachings are really, they're sacred and they would be easily misinterpreted and distorted for the wrong reason. Yes. And I, I think that when you make a statement like that or you make a, a, a suggestion like that, I, I think it's funny because it kind of comes off. I'm not saying you are. I'm just saying anybody who says that and I've said it so many times on the show, it almost makes me sound like I'm, I'm arrogant, but that's not what it means. It, uh, the example I always give is that like Baphomet, some people see Baphomet as evil. Some see Baphomet as good. Some, you know, good and evil can be subjective. And I always tell people that Baphomet really isn't good or evil. Uh, Baphomet is kind of a symbol. I call Baphomet, uh, as an example, kind of like a scare symbol, like a scarecrow. Uh, or a scare profane. It kind of scares the profane away from investing uh, and um, uh, looking into things that they're not ready to learn about or l- ready to accept. Um, and Manley Hall wrote that kind of the same thing. He said that even though a symbol like that, a symbol like a Baphomet, if you will, uh, kind of scares people away, uh, it, it's a warning, but it's also something that since we're naturally drawn to a form of darkness uh, in the world, we're drawn to things that we can't see, we want to learn, we want to explore that's all, I think, you know, part of the essence of God within us. Uh, the darkness can draw us to the light in the same way. And that's why Baphomet has the torch in the air uh, and the or the torch that points upward with the pentagram pointing upward. That's the four elements. And then the fifth uh, consciousness and the soul bursting forth from the body like Osiris in Egypt and the mummy uh, mummified uh, wrappings and his head is free. Uh, and then you have the opposite of that in like the tarot card with the devil where the torch is down and the humans are chained to the black uh, cube. Um, So Mm -hmm. I'm just bringing all that up because I think certain symbols in relation to what you're saying uh, can give this, this perception or provide this perception or provide this idea that uh, these are things that are evil. Don't go near them. Uh, And really it's something that's supposed to draw people to the darkness, to bring them to the light and also to prevent people from looking into things that they're not ready to fully accept yet. Does that make sense? That's, that's, that's what I'm thinking. Oh, totally. Totally. Um, the example that I like to use is Lucifer, which is another name for the morning star, Venus. Um, and I think of Venus in that context. And, you know, this goes back to other mythologies, like the story of Inanna in the uh, Sumerian mythology and Inanna and her, you know, self-directed journey into the underworld to, um, connect with her dark sister, Ereshkigal, which is essentially an aspect of herself, a dark aspect of herself that has been neglected and is sort of like suffering in this underworld, you know, just sort of uh, unclean and um, stuck there and frustrated. And so Inanna goes on this journey to um, talk to her sister in the underworld and essentially to reunite with this dark aspect of herself. But it's not a pleasant journey and 
in when she gets down there, she ends up being turned into a rotting piece of meat and hung up on the wall. And her faithful servant has to sort of rescue her through petitioning the gods. And this whole journey going into the darkness to discover parts of ourselves that have been neglected and forgotten and abandoned. Um, it's so essential to the path. And it's also an essential part of the hermetic path of death and rebirth and this initiation process of facing our fears of the darkness within us, facing our fears of mortality and death um, and coming to see the eternal nature of all things, including ourselves in the process and um, being reborn through that. So Lucifer in that sense, um, as the morning star and then as Vespertine, the evening star, Venus is this energy that guides us into the darkness and then through her own process of death and rebirth and her underworld journey, um, reflected in the synodic cycles of the planet herself, um, that is sort of that guiding light into the darkness and then back out into the light again. But it's ultimately just a process of self-discovery and self-knowledge, which is at the core of the hermetic teaching. Um, True self-knowledge, which is... Go, Go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, I was finishing up, but just true self-knowledge, which is what we call gnosis, the ultimate form of self-knowledge and knowledge of all things. That sort of rings harmonious with the story of Demeter and Persephone, which is like an allegory relating to agriculture, but Persephone Uh also goes into the underworld, as I'm sure you know. I also found that story interesting Uh because um, the story is that Hades comes up and, and kidnaps Persephone and when that happens, he's writing, usually in the story, he's riding a very uh, black or a, a charcoal-colored horse. And he's also carrying with him scales because he, he carries uh, the scales to weigh the soul, just like you know Anubis in the underworld in Egypt or uh, with the heart and the feather uh, or the, the judgment and the Christian judgment in the end of days. Very, very similar kind of an idea. But the scales and the black horse also relate to the horses of Revelations and Four Horses of the Apocalypse, because you have the black horse that weighs us, weighs our soul and our heart, etc. at the end of the year. And then you have death that comes afterward, and then you have rebirth, and then you have life. So in essence, the black horse with the scales is fall, and then the white horse, or I should say the pale horse, is the winter. The white horse is the springtime, and the red horse is the summertime. So these horses are constantly galloping upon the earth. Uh, there's an agricultural and a natural uh, cyclical element to those kinds of stories, which I tell people you shouldn't be afraid of that kind of end of the world scenario in the in the very hardcore Christian sense, if you will, because uh, that is a natural cycle. And uh, you find that in stories like Hades and Demeter and Persephone. Uh, you find that in the Bible. Uh, it's it, it has a lot to do, as we've been talking about tonight, with nature, uh, with cycles of nature and with understanding those things. Yeah, exactly. And those cycles of nature are, you know, they're also reflected in the alchemical great work, the four stages of the great work, um, which I get into a little bit in this book, but more in the the book that's coming out next year. Um, But those phases, they begin with death and putrefaction, the negredo, the blackness. Um, So it really begins in that death process and uh, going into the darkness or opening the prima materia, the primal matter within ourselves. Um, and then it evolves through these four stages, um, the albedo or the whitening, which is a phase of like cleansing and washing and dissolution. And then the trinitas, which is a phase of maturation and development and that's yellowing. 
and then finally the red, which is the rubedo, um, and that's the completion of the great work and the perfection of the philosopher's stone and the ability of the philosopher's stone to then transmute energy or other metals in the physical sense. It's interesting that red is that, you said that was the final color, correct? Yeah. It's interesting because when I, I was doing a lot of research for my book, Occult Arcana, I learned, I don't know if you've heard this word, and, and I might not be pronouncing it correctly, hyridol. You ever heard that word before, know what that means? No, I'm not familiar with it. Okay, hyridol supposedly means, um, it's a word that has been mistranslated into harlot or whore. But hyridol was the name of the priestess, particularly in the old Sumerian rites, like in Babylon and, and places like that. Um, and this is the woman who would come into the chamber, uh, or they call the bridal chamber, during the last stages of initiation, usually at the, uh, at the, um, the end of the initiation, sometimes at the beginning. I guess it depends on the ritual. Uh, but she would wear a red robe, and she would signify uh, the Great Mother. Uh, she'd signify Inanna, or she'd signify Ishtar. Um, and that later became, where the, that, that's where the Whore of Babylon idea came from. But this was a, a woman the sacred feminine coming into the chamber uh, to help the initiate. Usually she'd give them some kind of a substance, uh, a drink, like we know those drinks, uh, the blue water lily in Egypt, or they use that purple fungus in Greece. They use that at the Oracle of Delphi as well. But yeah, the woman would wear the red, uh, the red dress or the red robes, the hyridol, and she'd come in and she'd administer the final rites of the ceremony into the, into the secret teachings, into the mysteries. Um, so, I was just thinking of that because you said the color red was the final stage of that initiation. And that, uh, from what I've read mm -hmm. and from what I've studied in ancient Samaria, they used red also for the final stages of that, uh, that ritual. That's fascinating. And also interesting that you said that it occurs in the bridal chamber, because that's also a very important aspect of the completion of the great work. Um, in one sense, the bridal chamber is, it's the vessel where the, the male and the female polarities are united together. And so these, active and passive principles working within us are brought to unification through the process of the great work. Um, but the bridal chamber also refers to a specific region in the brain, the hypothalamic region. Um, it's also called the crystal pal palace in Taoist tradition. And um, it's a very important place where these two opposing parts of ourselves come to union and where we are able to not only um, unify the conscious and the unconscious within ourselves, but project our imaginations outward and transmute our own reality through our imagination. And that's all part of this alchemical process of self-realization and unification of our energies. There's a really great verse on that if you read the Gospel of Philip. Um, in the Gospel of Philip, he talks about the uh, male and female and about the bridal chamber and about the coming together of the bride and groom, uh, which is... Oh, yeah. As, I mean, that's obviously why we, you know, call people the, the bride of Christ, the church, you know, it's, it all has a similar meaning. I mean, Christianity in that sense is really just, um, I guess you could say it's a public version of the ancient mysteries, which I've actually heard some people suggest perhaps that's one of the reasons that the, if there is a historical Jesus, which I, I believe there is a historical, perhaps several different historical Jesus figures, um, one of the reasons that the Roman church was so angry uh, was that they were teaching some of the, um, some of the ceremonial rites to the public, uh, teaching the public things that maybe only, uh, maybe only the, the rulers and the high priests should know. And they wanted to keep that secret and they were actually, and Jesus was teaching that to the public. Have you ever heard that or thought, thought about that? I have not heard that, but that's super interesting. 
Yeah, something I forget. Yeah, the, be- forget the book I read that in. Go ahead. Yeah, if you remember, I'd be interested to know what what that book is. I'll look it up on break. I, I know I have it on my shelf over here. I'll try to find the, the name of the book. Uh, your book, though, is named Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy. We have about two and a half to three minutes before the final break tonight. Is there anything else that you'd like to cram into this uh, third segment? Um, well, maybe we could talk a little bit more about alchemy and about the seven spheres. I don't, we haven't talked too much about that. That would be wonderful. Could you kind of summarize the uh, the seven spheres for us and you know, uh, in relation to alchemy before the break, we've uh, again, about two minutes, if you can do that. Yeah. So in the hermetic cosmogony, um, the divine creator, the one all, um, created a second mind, which is the divine mind. And this sort of demiurge created these seven spheres. Um, and the human soul in its descent into matter is said to go through these spheres and, take on different energies as it descends through these spheres. And these seven spheres relate to the seven traditional planets, um, starting with the outermost, Saturn, and then Jupiter, Mars, uh, Venus, Mercury, and the moon and the sun as well. So as we descend through these seven spheres, we take on these energies, and these planets are working upon us unconsciously as we go through life. And the more conscious that we can become of how these archetypal energies work within us and around us, um, the more agency we have over our own fate. Because these planetary spheres are said to be the governors of fate. So essentially they're ruling us until we get to know them and understand them and integrate them in a way that we become conscious and um, step into our own creative power. And this is also understood as rising up to the eighth so there's an eighth sphere which is associated with the fixed stars in the zodiac and this sort of supersedes these seven planetary spheres of fate. And if we look at this alchemically, we see the seven planetary metals, which are sort of the terrestrial signature of those um, celestial planetary bodies. And so gold correlates with the sun and silver with the moon, um, quicksilver with mercury, copper with Venus, um, or I'm sorry, iron with Mars, tin with Jupiter, and lead with Saturn. And so these seven metals are said to exist within the Earth, which is also synonymous with the body. And through extracting them in their raw state and putting them through different alchemical processes of purification and refinement, um, we can come to perfect the metals and exalt them into their most noble forms, which are the silver and gold and the highest forms of consciousness that we can attain. So this is all happening physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, on all the different levels of our experience. It's happening within and without as well. So we can talk more about this, I guess, after the break, but that's a little synopsis of that. Yeah, sure thing. And actually, I have uh, the name of those authors. I'm pretty sure it was Christopher Knight and Robert Lomas who suggested that uh, that idea about Jesus and the Roman Empire. Uh, but also in relation to what you were just saying, there's a really fantastic book called Jesus Christ, S-U-N, Son of God, uh, Ancient Cosmology yeah. and Early Christians. Have you read that or heard of that? No, I would like to. Oh, it's a fantastic book. David Fiddler, or Fiddler, I think is how you pronounce his name. Uh, and he actually talks about the eighth sphere as being the point, uh, basically a singularity point, and then the seven rays of light or seven days of creation, if you will, they come outward from that eighth point to create the cube 
uh, or which is the symbol of Saturn, the, which is our physical universe. So I always found that really interesting. Uh, I'm Ryan Gable. This is The Secret Teachings. The guest tonight, her website, Marlena7Brimner.com. Her book, a really fantastic book. You can get a copy of it. Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy. More after this. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to The Secret Teachings. For more information on the show or to contact Ryan, visit thesecretteachings.info or email ryan at rdgable at yahoo.com. Thanks, Ryan. This is David Knight with the davidknightshow.com, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings. If you're looking for a great gift that keeps on giving this year, check out one of my four books for the holiday season. Occult Arcana is a monumental collection of esoteric and occult lore. The technological elixir looks at UFOs, demonology in the music industry, and the soul and spirit in relation to modern technology. Liberty Shrugged, my new book, takes you on a historical journey through the concepts of natural liberty and provides a different angle on the American Revolution. Food philosophy explores food industry propaganda, advertising tricks, and geoengineering. Get all four books only at thesecretteachings.info in softcover or digital. That's thesecretteachings.info. You are listening to The Secret Teachings Radio, hour number two, segment number four. If you'd like to contact the show, rdgable or tst, so rdgable at yahoo.com or tstradio at protonmail.com. Our guest this evening has written a fantastic book called Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy. Her name is Marlena Seven Brimner. You can type that name in, M-A-R-L-E-N-E, S-E-V-E-N, B-R-E-M-N-E-R.com. You can also find her 7Art on Patreon. We've talked a lot about alchemy and hermeticism tonight in the last segment. And if you're just joining us, we discussed a little bit about the seven planetary bodies, their correlations, and the eighth sphere. I actually have a book here in front of me, one of my favorite books, Jesus Christ, Son of God, the author David Feidler, Fiddler, he says in the book that the eighth sphere, and uh, a lot of other authors have written about that eighth sphere, uh, the eighth sphere is essentially the central point from which there is emanation. So it is essentially the source, the center of the monad, and then the seven points, seven divine rays of light, the seven days of creation, uh, or Mithra or Mithras uh, was actually known as the god of seven rays. So those seven points emanate from the eighth point, and that creates uh, the universe as we know it, which is maintained by Saturnistic, heavy, uh, gravitational, if you will, influences. Marlena, you were talking about the seven planets and alchemy, if you'd like to pick up where you left off. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting, um, his conception of the eighth sphere as being the emanating point. Um, it's pretty similar to the hermetic conception of the cosmos, except uh, they conceive of a ninth and tenth sphere as well. And so you've got the seven planetary spheres, uh, which are the spheres of fate, and then the eighth sphere, which exists outside of them, and that's the sphere of the six stars, the zodiac, that the planets are moving through. <laughs> it's also the realm of the souls, um, the realm of light. And 
another name for it is the Abdoad or the creative or formative sphere. And so my understanding of it is that it's like when we have unified the energies of the seven planetary bodies uh, within us, then we are able to ascend to this eighth sphere, which is ultimately our creative freedom and liberation, where we step into a realm of complete creative flow. And we're not inhibited by these different um, polarized energies within us. So that's the eighth sphere. And then the ninth sphere is more the level of divine mind. Um, and then the tenth sphere beyond that is what the Hermetic consider the source or the unbegotten um, God, which is basically the life, the light, and the good and complete unity consciousness and um, dissolution of all separation in the one, in the 10th sphere. Yeah, I know you wrote so, about, the, you wrote about the Ogdoad in your book is, is that's, I think they call that the spiritual sun. Is that right? Have you heard that? The spiritual sun? Yeah. I've, um, I've heard I, it referred to as that. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. And I mean, the sun is included within the planetary fate spheres. So, um, but the sun is that through which the source is emanating its rays. So the sun is our direct connection with those rays, and it's really our highest point of consciousness within our energy body is that solar uh, crown energy. I see. Okay, so the eighth sphere, and I, I didn't want to cut you off there uh, intentionally, but I just wanted to mention that, but go ahead. Yeah, so um, through our ability to integrate these energies and understand them, um, in different ways, we can basically de-energize these fate spheres. So they're not working upon us unconsciously. And we can rise up through them to this eight sphere and become more effective agents of our own fate, have more um, creative capability over our destiny. And that doesn't mean that we gain complete control over everything. Um, there's still an element of chaos and there's still an entire cosmos of other beings and factors at work. So it's more of a co-creative process, but we step out of this sort of unconscious drunken stupor that so many of us walk through life in and step into a more conscious connection with all of existence and with our most divine essential nature reflected within the alchemical work uh, with the seven planetary metals. And so the process of working with these metals within us, is also can also be seen energetically through the esoteric anatomy of the body. And this is kind of how I present it in the book um, with the seven chakras. And so each of these planets corresponds with one of these seven chakras that goes up the spinal column and beginning with Saturn, which is the root chakra, um, the lowermost chakra um, at the base of our perineum, um, base of the spine, rising up from there through the seven planetary bodies to the crown, which is, the solar gold. Um, and so Saturn corresponding with lead, we had this idea of transmuting lead into gold. So going from the lowest to the highest and exalting the, the lowest parts of ourselves to their most noble, essential natures. Gosh, and there's so much more to it. You know, it's like with the creative process and alchemy, like I talked about before, uh, we can really start to look at these different planetary energies archetypally and mythologically and see where we are um, living out these different mythologies, how they're expressing themselves through our lives and through our experiences and begin to integrate that and understand it through the creative process and use that as um, a source of inspiration um, to deepen our relationship with these energies because it's not just about overcoming them, right? It's about 
getting to know them on a personal level as though they were another person, but they're really an intimate part of ourselves. And so looking at all the different aspects of the planets, like through correspondence, um, which is the idea that um, each planet correlates with things on the microcosm and the macrocosm. So, you know, say each planet has a specific set of plants or minerals or animals or um, alchemical processes, things that it corresponds to in the natural world. And through understanding these correspondences, we can gain a deeper relationship to that planetary energy. And that can inform our magical practice and our creative practice as well. Do you so, think it Do you think it matters much? I've had discussions with friends of mine about this uh, who are in, let's call it, uh, radio business, who, who are into these types of subjects. Uh, a friend of mine mm-hmm. named Joe Roop, and Joe Roop and I have talked about how uh, some gods or some goddesses, it depends on, you know, who we're talking about here, but let's, let's use Isis as an example, uh, that it might be perhaps uh, more beneficial to use the name Isis uh, in your, in, you know, if you're doing something ritualistically or ceremonially, because she's arguably much more well-known around the world as opposed to another goddess who's equal, but lesser well-known. So there's more energy that goes into Isis, more energy that you can get out of Isis. Like on the surface, I don't necessarily agree that that's you know, a universal thing because whatever works for you works for you. But do you think that there's some mm-hmm. merit to that, that some of the more well-known gods and goddesses might be better to work with because there's much more energy within them uh, in that reservoir? I could see that. I could see that. Um, ultimately, though, I think working with the deities that you have the most connection to. Right, yes. I think that's important because that's where the most energy is going to be, where your personal connections are. You know, and it's the same thing with correspondence. You know, you can look at all the lists of correspondences and books and stuff like that to kind of give you an idea of how these energies express themselves on different levels and in different worlds. But we also have our own associations. You know, something that's solar for me might be uh, mercurial for you, you know. Like, I've you, never heard get, of the... I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I just wanted to give an, another example, uh, which often comes to mind in this context, which is like, I've never heard of the octopus as being listed in correspondence tables as a animal related to mercury, but I always think of mercury with octopus because of the eight legs and their sort of trickster energy and Houdini moves and, you know, squirting out ink and all of that. So, you know, there's really the personal is so important in this work because that's where the most energy is going to be. So whether a God is more well-known or more popular is maybe secondary, I think, to that. Maybe then the the observation could be that, you know, when you're first getting started, if you don't fully understand, uh, you know, all the correspondences, certainly picking things you resonate with, but picking some uh, some god or goddess, if you will, that uh, or planetary energy that, that you kind of, you know more about because it is more popular. Maybe that's kind of the idea of what, what I was getting at or what uh, I've had discussions with, with other people about, but I, I completely agree with you. And, you know, it's interesting because, you talk about gold and different kinds of metals. Um, have you ever heard that the, well, first of all, you ever heard of the Pythagorean Y, the idea of the Pythagorean Y? Um, tell me more. Pythagorean Y is this idea about free will. So if you take just a regular old uppercase Y, you have the left hand bar and the right hand bar, which is the fork in the road. The left hand bar mm-hmm. is very, very easy to navigate, but at the end you fall off into a, an abyss the right hand is very difficult to navigate, but at the end, once you get through all those hardships and, and you learn and grow, 
then you basically get to nirvana or you get to heaven. And these, these, these ideas are not just within geometry, it's also within the mythology of, let's say, uh, the eye or the eyes of Horus, where one eye is ripped out and given to Osiris in the underworld. So one eye is representative of light or the sun or gold. The other eye is representative of the moon or darkness or reflection, right? And uh, usually silver. Um, and you have that, it's interesting, you have that same concept is in Egypt, uh, from Egypt all the way to Japan, uh, there's the creator god, Izanagi no Mikoto, and this creator god, out of one of their eyes, is born Ameterasu, who is basically the Jesus character. She was in a tomb for three days, resurrected, brought light back to the world. Um, but these, So these concepts are in mythology, uh, they're in the geometry of the Pythagorean Y, and they're the basis for this is a very popular thing today, the right-hand path or the left-hand path. And I just mm-hmm. say all that to bring, to bring that into the conversation in relationship to silver and gold and different kinds of metals. Um, I don't know if you mm-hmm. want to do anything with those ideas, but just something I wanted to share with you. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, going back to the Emerald Tablet, which we didn't actually make it all the way through in our discussion earlier, um, the next line is, its father is the sun and its mother the moon. So these, you know, essential polarities of this, duality that we exist in, the mother and the father, the sun and the moon, uh, fire and water, soul and spirit, um, masculine, feminine, you know, these are expressed in so many different ways. It's the opposite. And our task is really to return to the unification of these opposites and to understand them as part of the same thing. Um, it takes hardship to do that. It takes hardship and learning and, and, and work to do that. Oh, yeah, so much so. And if we think about this in terms of the conscious and the unconscious mind, we really can, you know, get a grasp of what that means. It's like really going into the depths of ourselves and integrating every aspect of ourselves. And that takes a lot of courage. It's not a path for the weak of heart, you know. um, Sometimes the trials and tribulations of life just kind of throw us into this stuff and it happens against, you know, our desire and our will, but for a lot of us, we kind of have to like pick our way through it and go on that right path of the, the why of Pythagoras, you know, and make that choice that we're not going to just take the easy route, but we're going to be willing to take risks and we're going to be willing to step into the unknown because that's where the greatest reward. And well, um, we, ha- and we have three. So traditionally they say that th- the sun has three elements to it, intellectual, spiritual, and material. We are basically sons and well, sons, S-O-N, or S-U-N, sons of God, or sons of the sun, or daughters of God, daughters of the sun. So we also, of course, have intellectual, spiritual, and material components. And it might be that our mm-hmm. material self wishes to adhere to the left-hand path, but it's the spiritual and perhaps the intellectual as well that has to draw us to the right-hand path uh, to, to take us on that journey. Yeah, certainly. Certainly there could be resistance from any one of those parts of ourselves. But I think really we kind of need to bring all three of them along ultimately. Oh, certainly. Yeah. That, and that's, that's what I was, I, I was hopefully implying that, yeah, the material has to be brought along with the spiritual and the intellectual. Um, yeah. There has to be unification of all. So, so but then I guess let's go back to the Emerald tablet. So let's, let's go through that. We have plenty of time. Let's go through the rest of that. So what is after the third line? What do we have after that? The earth carried it in her belly and the wind nourished it in her belly as earth which shall become fire. So we have a couple things happening here. We have elemental relationships, earth and wind, earth and fire, which in one sense could be another expression of the polarities, the opposite. But we also have this reference to an it, 
And so what is this it, right? The earth carried it in her belly. The wind nourished it in her belly as earth which shall become fire. This could be conceived as consciousness, um, the imagination, um, the divine seed of, of the self. Um, I think consciousness is a good way to think about it. So then the next line, feed the earth from that which is subtle with the greatest power. So if we think about earth as being that which is gross and physical and dense and heavy, we're feeding that with the subtle, which is the spiritual, um, with the greatest power. So with the, the power of our intention and attention and strength of our imagination. It ascends from the earth to the heavens and becomes ruler over that which is above and that which is below. And so here we have this hermetic idea of ascent through the spheres from earth to heaven and becoming ruler over that which is above and below. So the conscious and the unconscious becoming fully integrated on all these levels of our being and becoming the ruler of our own destiny and our own fate by becoming ruler of the conscious and unconscious the upper and the lower within us. I'm just curious. I'm just curious because I know a lot of listeners ask me this, this question and they ask, especially if I have a guest on, they ask me uh, if the guest uh, is influenced by Carl Jung or Joseph Campbell. Oh yeah. (laughs) Both more Carl, Carl Jung more, but um, both. Okay. I I, I figured as much. Yeah. Jung was my introduction to alchemy years and years ago. Um, reading alchemical studies and psychology and alchemy and Mysterium Conjunctionis. Um, very big influence and introduction to the ideas of the alchemical work. And from there, I was able to um, find a lot of the source texts that he referenced and do my own study with them. But, yeah. I actually don't think um, this is just my my perspective. I, I, us- I usually don't think of Carl Jung when I think of magic and occultism. Um, and if I'm being honest with you, I when I was first started out radio and I would learn, I would read books and learn things and share them on the show like 13 years ago, I was fresh out of high school, college too, but I would talk about things and people would ask me like, are you, do you read a lot of Carl Jung? And I was like, no, I I don't have any idea who Carl Jung is. And then I started to read Carl Jung um, a little bit here or there, but I I was always more influenced by Joseph Campbell because I like, I guess my mind's more analytical. I just like the raw associations between different things like the comparative religions and comparative mythologies. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that, that is an interesting thing that I, I wanted to ask you about in relation to everything else we're discussing. A lot of the mythology, like if you think of the classical example of Troy, you thought it was a myth, but turns out Troy is, well, supposedly it's a very real place. It might be different than the myth, but it's a real place in the same way that uh, in Southwest India, or excuse me, Northwest India, not Southwest India, Northwest India, you have Dwarka, uh, which is off the coast. There is a Dwarka city, but there's a Dwarka that's underwater off the coast. Um, and that was, in the myth, said to have been sunk in a battle between Krishna and this king. That was thought to be myth, but that's true. So a lot of myth is, in the physical sense, like it's taking places, in, including the Bible even, it's taking places on the planet in very real locations and likewise, I think that there are a lot of things in myth. You mentioned them earlier with one of the stories that I related to Persephone and Demeter. They're just kind of, they seem like fanciful stories, but at their core, not only are there archaeological sites that prove that the myth was based on something, but there's spiritual, if you will, spiritual archaeology within the self where you find that the mythology is ultimately based. So a lot of mythology, therefore, I think could be defined and classified as both history, 
science and a lot of other things. It's not, it's obviously not just something that is a, is a fun story to tell. Yeah, I think um, they're much more important than we, in this day and age, in this culture, than we give them credit for. And there's so much to be learned from them on all these different levels that you're talking about. And I think as time goes on, we probably will discover more, you know, actual places that have been um, buried or submerged in the sea that correlate with these myths. But, and, and I think that's so fascinating also that there are these physical counterparts to the myth and yet they function on these very psychological archetypal levels um, that don't seem to really change that much over time, you know? Well, that goes back to what you said about Thoth and Hermes and, having lived before the flood and really basically founding or, you know, creating the, the Egyptian uh, culture and civilization uh, as, yeah. as we, as we know it. Uh, so we've got about 10 minutes left here. Um, you can take us wherever you want. If you want to continue going into the Emerald tablet or the seven spheres of creation, there's only one other thing I really wanted to ask you about uh, in regard to what we've been discussing, but basically the floor is yours and you can take us wherever you'd like for the next few minutes. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'd like to just talk a little bit more about the alchemy side of things. Um, sure. And this idea of the philosopher's stone. And um, I talk about this in the book quite a bit, but the the beginning of the work is said to be with the opening of the primal matter, the prima materia. And this we can understand as like undifferentiated consciousness. So everything all at once, what we might call chaos or even void, um, it's essentially a realm of pure potential where everything exists, but nothing is differentiated. And we can equate this with the, you know, deep unconscious within us that we don't really have access to, um, except through certain ways, like through dreams or through entering trance states and sort of different altered states of consciousness that allow us to communicate with this unconscious part of ourselves. Um, and this process of going into the prima materia um, is also reflected in this idea that we start the alchemical work in the darkness and with the shadow, um, with facing death and our fear of death. And this idea of putrefaction, allowing things to kind of rot away and reveal the, the darkness and the nastiness that we have inside of ourselves so, so that it's not working upon us unconsciously and um, getting projected in all sorts of unhealthy ways and externalized so that we're divided amongst ourselves basically. Um, but coming to integrate these things and this is a really challenging, difficult process and it can feel, um, you know, it can feel like depression. It can feel like melancholia. It can feel like madness even, or like being completely disconnected. But the idea with the alchemical work is that it does transform. If we're able to sit with that discomfort, it does transform. And then we go through these different stages. And the idea is that the philosopher's stone, which is akin to the hermetic conception of gnosis or ultimate self-knowledge, is found in that prima materia. Um, it is birthed from the prima materia, and then through our alchemical work, we bring it to perfection as the ultima materia, the ultimate matter. And this is the perfection of the philosopher's stone. And the way that I understand this is it's also the complete liberation and um, access to our true imagination. And so when we're talking about rising up to this eighth sphere in the hermetic cos cosmology, um, 
and stepping into our creative power, um, the philosopher's stone is that which allows us to create through the imagination. So it's also a, um, a honing of the will and a unification of the energies of the body so that our will is aligned, the personal will with the divine will. So we're not working against that divine will. We're not like trying to just affect things for the sake of it. We're working with the, the harmony of nature and the harmony of the spheres. Um, and yet we're also stepping into this sort of creative authority and power in our lives. And with that philosopher's stone and true imagination, we can take any situation, external circumstance, and transmute it into its most noble, exalted form, just as like the alchemist working with the metal would take the powder of projection, which is the philosopher's stone in a powder form, and project it onto the metals and transmute them into gold. And in that way, um, create inordinate amounts of gold if they wanted to, hypothetically. Um, and in the same sense, um, as an analogy, we can transmute our realities into gold through the imagination, through this purification process of the great work of alchemy. And we can do that through the creative process and through working with these seven spheres, these seven metal energies, the seven chakras, coming to understand these archetypal aspects of the self in their completion and working out any sort of unconscious factors that are holding us back. That kind of, that kind of sounds like uh, Kether, the, the top, mm. the top sphere in a way it yeah. sort of sounds like that. And also uh, I think it's the eighth card of the tarot fortitude, which is defined as power and accomplishment and honor and like unification. So eight fortitude, there's mm. a relationship of correspondence there. You know, what it reminds me of Marlena is, um, I'm, I'm not really um, a huge fiction fan. I'm always a nonfiction guy, always been a nonfiction guy. But when I was growing up, I, uh, so I never read Harry Potter. And when, honestly, I only saw Harry Potter for the first time, maybe like four years ago. And the, the, someone showed me the first movie and I thought, well, that's, this isn't just like a story. Like, so Harry and, and um, Ron, they fall into the devil's snare and Hermione has to use light to get them out. And the more they struggle, the more, there's resistance. So that's kind of like, um, you know, the more you resist uh, the natural order of things, the natural cycles, the more that you're going to struggle and have hardship. Once you go with the flow, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream, if you will, uh, you come out sure. of that struggle. And then Harry finds out that he has the stone on him the whole time. It's been within him the whole time. Um, and of course, <laughs> Hagrid's kind of like Sharon and Fluffy, the three-headed dog, they play the music to let him go to sleep before they jump into the pit. And I saw that movie and I was thinking like, I've, I mean, I've only heard a few people bring that up, but you know, movies like Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, these movies are powerful. Even Star Wars, uh, as George Lucas said that about uh, Joseph Campbell being a great mentor because they speak to these things with, within us. Yeah. They're like modern day myths, right? Oh yes, they are. That's a great way to put it. Absolutely. Yes. And so is, so is, uh, one last thing, and I'll, and I'll give you a, a minute or two here to wrap up. Uh, Beauty and the Beast. I've always thought, you know, he's basically, the guy is the beast, is a prince. He gets reduced to this, this gross matter, this animal self, this animal thing. Uh, and then beauty is harmony. Harmony calms the beast. Uh, and, mm -hmm. she, of course, it's, harmony is usually music and, and sound. So her, her name is Bell, ringing of a bell, which also wards off evil, the brass bells and all the old churches. Uh, and then the rose is a symbol of initiation and the divine feminine. And the rose is the centerpiece of the beauty and the beast story. 
uh, which I believe is an old French story from the late 1800s. So all these stories, yes, they are modern myths. And uh, whether like I'm not really a Harry Potter fan, but I watch I'd watch it just because these elements are within it and they really speak to me. Yes, I think that's so awesome and great that people are carrying on these stories and myths in a modern form. And uh, hopefully those will continue to carry on. You know, I think Lord of the Rings is just so profound on so many levels that it seems to me like that story will be around for hundreds of years, if not more. I've actually read that uh, he, the author of that series got a little bit, I mean, clearly J.K. Rowling knew some stuff or was researching stuff like you and I research and write about. She didn't just randomly come up with the idea, I don't think. And uh, Tolkien, likewise, he's, he supposedly had access to old libraries and uh, th- you know old manuscripts and old libraries that uh, kind of maybe relate to a time period uh, before, well, the flood, kind of the time when Thoth lived or uh, the time in which uh, we have these source maps for like the Perry Rees map and these other maps that show a, a, a world before the deluges. Anyway, uh, final comments. Well, um, I guess one more note on the eighth sphere and creative sphere and the philosopher's stone um, that I, I relate this to what you were just talking about, which is stepping into the flow and not being in a state of resistance, but really embracing everything that life is throwing at us and um, feeling a sense of creative uh, authority with it, you know, and being able to, to be in flow, to be focused and present in the moment. And um, I think it's a really beautiful place to be. And that's ultimately, I think what these hermetic teachings bring us toward. And all of this work is really helping us to, be in a state of existence that is um, really beautiful and really in alignment with all things and creative and um, in tune with the harmony of the spheres and not, uh, not working against them and not being ruled by them either. Very much agreed. Marlena Seven Brimner, our guest, the book is beautiful and her art is beautiful. Hermetic philosophy and creative alchemy, her website, Marlena Seven Uh, The art is really, really beautiful. I I can't state that enough. The book is amazing. Thank you so much for coming on The Secret Teachings. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. It's really been a pleasure talking with you. Love to have you back sometime. Uh, Hopefully we can talk again. Uh, Listeners uh, want a copy of the book. Uh, They want to find your website. I already gave that out. Patreon as well. Just quickly summarize that. Let people know where they can uh, find your stuff and where they can get a copy of the book. Oh, yeah. You can find me on my website, which is marlena7bremner.com. And Ryan will have the link to that if you need the spelling. And then I have a Patreon account that you can subscribe to if you want to go a little deeper. Um, And that is patreon.com forward slash 7art. So S-E-V-E-N-A-R-T. I'm also on Instagram, and that's kind of where I post most often. Um, Not only my art, but things about the books and about my travels and other other things that I'm thinking about. Um, And my handle at Instagram is m the number seven artist, M7 artist. And you can find me on Facebook under Marlena Seven Bremner artist. And yeah, there's a lot of places to find me. All right. Well, hopefully listeners can find you back on the secret teachings at some point. Marlena, thank you so much. Thank you, Ryan. I would love to be back on sometime. All right. We'll definitely set it up. I'm Ryan Gable. This is The Secret Teachings. Marlena Seven Bremner, our guest this evening. If you'd like to contact the show, rdgable at yahoo.com. TST Radio at ProtonMail.com. You can subscribe to our full archive. Grab a copy of my book, Occult Arcana, very similar to what we've been talking about tonight. A lot of 
correspondences in that book, Comparative Myths and Religions, Esoterica and Occultism, etc. Find that on our website also, thesecretteachings.info. Get a physical copy of that book, and I can do autographs as well. Uh, something I read and something I concluded my Occult Arcana book with, uh, a, a statement that I've, I've seen in various different forums. Uh, Long hast thou dwelt in the darkness, now it is time to approach the light. Fiat lux, let there be light. This is The Secret Teaching. Stay safe, stay informed, stay healthy. Don't be afraid, be informed, and we'll talk to you on the next broadcast. Thank you.